Welcome. Got um, most of you guys know each other. This is my good longtime friends, George and Jennifer Coleman. They've they've done a lot of our taxes, but he's 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 taken care of our church finances for thirty years, and um, great blessing. He took a they took a class I taught probably in the eighties, wasn't it? Yeah, and on on religions and and um, since that time I know I know less than I did, so. <laughs> I knew a lot about it then. Um, my uh, background, I, I taught, I taught a, a required class to all the 8th graders at Collegiate for three years on world religions. This is back in the 80s. And um, so teaching a required class, first of all, you can imagine, and then to 8th graders. So it didn't require a lot of knowledge to beat, to beat the 8th grade minds, even at Collegiate. Um, and then... Um, since then, I've since that I taught that class, I got another graduate degree in Christian in theology, and what I've realized is, you know, it takes a lifetime to understand your own faith. So it would take multiple lifetimes to understand the faith of everybody else. And so nobody, there's no, there are people who are kind of world religion experts, but nobody really is. And I, I took a class on a religious class, a religion class at Wichita State when I was an undergrad, and the guy was teaching Christian theology, and now look, he, he, he knew nothing. I mean, he, he, it was, he knew less than nothing. It was, it, was, it was a net negative. And so this is, this is not, I don't, I'm not an expert on, I'm, I'm trying to become an expert on Christian faith. I'm not an expert on any faith, but I have spent 35 years at least studying and reading and thinking about it. And um, if you didn't get the email, if you and you want to read the book, um, and it's um, the Universe Next Door, <clears throat> right there. Universe Next Door. It looks like that by James Sire. I read the the first edition, and now I think it's edition six. And I I just reread the sixth edition. A good book, and he's written a if he's written another couple of books. Um, he wrote a book called uh, Naming the Elephant, which is which. It's, it's more of a uh, complex, it's more of a book on worldview as a concept rather than actual worldviews. If you're just super interested, you can read it. He, he, he wrote another book I just, I, can't, I just read last year, but I can't remember the name of it. But um, in, in, you know, naming, uh, in, the, in Naming the Elephant, he starts off with a story about this dad was explaining to his kid the universe. So explaining the universe, and, and the kid said, well, there's a, there's a camel you know, um, holding up the universe. And the kid goes, yeah, that's, that makes sense. And I've seen camels on holding stuff up. Then he came back later and said, oh, what's, what's underneath the camel? And he said, well, there's a kangaroo. Okay, so he went away and came back, and the kid goes, but what's underneath the kangaroo? And he, elephant. He said, what's underneath the elephant? He goes, it's elephant all the way down. <laughs> you know, so, so the, the idea is that every, every worldview has some presuppositions. People tend to think, but you've got to start somewhere like like we all we have the presupposition that you know we're that that you can know something that reality is a, a real thing you're not some robot's dream right now and we all have these presuppositions that we start with and and the, the Christ, christians do too and our presupposition is and it's god is there and god has spoken that's our presupposition but it's also based on evidence and 
what, what God's doing in our own hearts, all those kind of things. But everybody starts with some basic presuppositions. So we're gonna, today we're going to look at worldview. And there are all kinds of different kind of opinions about how to think about worldviews or what they are. When I first read Sire's book, that's the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. And uh, since then, I mean, last week, I, I pay attention, either on news report or radio reports or, or podcasts, I heard it eight times last week. It's so interesting how at first people were like, what's worldview? What's real? Now it's so part of our common vernacular that we don't even think about it. We just, we've gotten used to hearing it. Immanuel Kant was the first guy to coined the term supposedly in the 18th century and but I think from I think um, J- James Sire is the one who popularized the concept the concept in our in the Christian culture he's the one who started using that in the f- first edition of the universe next door G.K. Chesterton didn't talk about worldview but he talked that used that phrase but he but he talked worldview ishly a lot so I'll read a quote from from Chesterton he said uh, I think that the most important and practical thing about a man or a person is his view of the universe. So he means by that worldview. We think that for a landlady, considering a lodger, like someone they're going to take in, it's important to know his income, but still more important is to know his philosophy. Because his philosophy, like, do you want that person living with you? You want to know some things about how they see the world. But still, we think that for a general about to fight an enemy, it's important to know the enemy's numbers but still more important is to know the enemy's philosophy. He meant by that worldview. We think the question is not whether the theory of the cosmos affects matters, whether what we think about the universe affects things, but whether in the long run anything else affects them. Does that make sense? So we think, really, does it matter what we think about the cosmos? And he's saying, does anything else really matter? And so worldview, Sire's perspective on worldview and other people's is not what we look at, but what we look through. So it's the lens by which we see everything. And I, th- I think that's the, there's more complex definitions, but, it's, but if, you, if you think about how people are all seeing the same things, like this is, can be exasperating, but you're seeing the same things in the news or even in, in interpersonal relationships, and you're thinking, did we, did, were we at the same place at the same time? I mean, how could that even be possible? I read an NPR story last week. It said that not every young Palestinian belongs to Hamas, but militant groups offer a steady salary and they shape a worldview. There it is from NPR. And he said, I'm not a radical Muslim, one of the interviewed, but for those who belong to Hamas, it becomes part of the socialization process, part of the education process, hating the Jews or hating Israel as an occupier. And this probably explains the brutality that took place on 7th of October. This is a, a Palestinian political analyst speaking about it. So he's talking about how this was, you were seeing worldview in action. So worldview is not simply a set of data points. So you can, I, we can teach, uh, you know, pantheism as a worldview or polytheism as a worldview, but a person who actually holds that worldview, it's not just data points. So Akil had a different worldview, how long ago? Two years ago? Three years ago? Less than one year ago. And worldviews are hard to change unless the Holy Spirit moves. And, and it's, it's like Jesus telling Nicodemus, the Spirit of God moving. Then worldviews can change more quickly. So worldviews, not just a set of data points, 
but they're more like a story, like a narrative with all these different pieces to it. And you could teach a worldview, but someone doesn't see through a worldview except for all kind of different aspects. So if you think about how God gave us a biblical worldview, we got a Bible, but what is the Bible? It's books. The word biblios means books. It's poetry. It's wisdom literature. It's historical narrative. It's prophecy. It's laws. It's letters. It's not, it's a story. It's this big story that's got data in it. It's got laws in it. But he didn't just say, okay, here's how I'm going to tell you how the world works. I'm going to give you rules one through 500. He said, here it is. And it's this complex book that all fits together, but it's multiple genre. And that's, that God knows how worldview works. So often our worldviews, we collect them. Most people collect their worldviews unintentionally. So worldview comes from blogs, what they heard, what they, what they grew up doing, if they got bullied in school, if they failed a class or the girlfriend broke up. All this stuff, all this stuff forms a worldview. And, and, and Christians have kind of the essential stuff of their worldview, but then they have other things that have been glommed on apart from the Bible. And more and more in American culture, in a post-Christian culture, people will say they're a Christian, but if you ask them Christian questions, they're not a Christian at all. I'm a Christian. Why? Well, because I, I believe in the Bible. Well, the Bible teaches this. You believe that? No. I'm a Christian. Yeah, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross. You, really? You think he died on the cross in space and time? Well, no, not really. So it's, it gets very complicated. I've talked to, I've talked to Muslims. I've talked to Catholics. Not that Catholics a different worldview, but let's just say a subset of Christianity, a different version of Christianity. And I knew more about their worldview than they did. I've talked to Buddhists. I knew more about their worldview factually than they did. And, so, and there's Muslim scholars who know about the Christian worldview than Christians do. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. So the reason we're doing this is because your worldview ought to be ideally intentional. <laughs> Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teach them then to obey all that I've commanded you. So he wasn't just saying go out and make converts, but he go out and make full-time followers of Christ who, who believe he was... Go out and make help people develop a fully formed Christian worldview, Christ at the center of their lives. So it's what we see the world through. I also like the idea that I use for years. It's the pegs we hang things on. And um, if you think about tools... Or if you're not into tools, clothes, and you have these pegs and you hang things on. And so everything in your life that's happening, you put them on a peg. And little kids have, you know, one or two pegs. And then as you grow, you develop more pegs. Maybe those pegs come from a biblical worldview from the scripture. Maybe they don't. Maybe they came from somewhere else. And those pegs, they don't have um, anchors into the sheetrock. There it is. They have like glue holding them up or tape holding them up. But you haven't hung anything heavy on them yet. And so people have this, have this closet full of pegs and they've hung everything up on it and they're like, okay, I got it. It's all squared away. And then something happens and they hang it up and the pegs start falling off. And then what you have are things like PTSD. PTSD sometimes are the result of this is how I thought the world was. That's not how the world is. Or what's called moral injury. PTSD is more fear-based. Moral injury is more guilt-based when I do something or see something in combat or even in everyday life 
that betrays my worldview, then the pegs don't hold. So everybody in we encounter is seeing the same world, but seeing it through a different lens. So here's where it gets interesting is, is there's worldview and then there's personality. So Christy and I have about as different personalities as you can and the exact same worldview. How's that possible? Well, we both look at, we, we look at my grandkid do something, our grandkid do something. We both look at that and think God is, there is a triune God who's, who's made us, um, given us a stewardship of this grandkid being faithful matters. And this, this child is an image bearer of God. They may be acting like a, you know, like a subhuman creature right now, but they're an image bearer of God. And we have the exact same worldview. And then we apply that worldview from very different personalities. You know, so my youngest grandson runs through and he falls down and and I watched him, and I know oh, that wasn't that bad. And Christy's running over, running over, and I'm going, you're good, get up. And I pat him on his bottom. And, and so we have the same worldview, very, very different personalities. And, and in the church, you've got all these different gifts. But we, if you're going to join River or most churches, you've got to say, do you believe this? Are you willing to, do you value this? Our hard attitudes on the wall. And here's how we do life together. And then, Claire, by all means, don't be Terry. <laughs> you know, be, be Claire. We don't need you to be Terry. We need you to be Claire. So there's a very big difference between worldview and personality. Here's, here's, here's an example of looking at the world very differently. Phil Zuckerman's an atheist. He's a professor of secular studies, which is interesting, and written books on the secularization of societies of Europe and then now America. And... Uh, he talked about, I, I listened to him recently talking about secularization of Europe and then, and then now of the West, Europe, um, Western Europe was ahead of us, behind us, however you look at it, but ahead of us in secularization. And he's talking about why. And he says, from a sociologist standpoint, when a, when a nation becomes prosperous, their existential needs are met, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, they're, they're, they're fed, they're safe. Then they start worrying about the higher order stuff. He said the need for religion plummets in those societies. And he said whenever suffering goes up, religion, religion goes up. So 9-11 or, or Pearl Harbor or D-Day, whatever. And then he said when literacy goes up, scientific knowledge increases, faith decreases. This is his perspective from a sociological point of view. And then we've asked what could cause a change in course of the trend towards secularization in the West. He said, well, if life becomes more precarious, more uneasy, more dangerous, then there'll be an uptick probably in religion and the need for supernatural health, help. So he's looking at the same historical events that you and I are. He looks at, okay, their, their existential needs were taken care of. They were prosperous. You know, they got Darwin to explain life without need for God, all that kind of stuff. And so he's saying that's just a normal human course of things. They're, they're getting smarter than religion. And we look at the same stuff and say, they're walking away from God. This is, this is what the biblical narrative shows us. They're not, even, not getting smarter, they're getting dumber. And they're, they're putting more and more emphasis in themselves. And when we say, well, religion, religion goes up when suffering goes up, he sees a sociological factor, human psychology. What do we see? We see what C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures, he shouts in our pain. 
pain is God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. We see God in that. So if you took this guy, if you took this sociologist, and we're both like in the, in the announcer's box watching Acts 2 happen. <laughs> you know, we're, we're broadcasting Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit falls, and the church is born. And in Acts chapter 2, there's a group of people who said, they're drunk. That's what, they're just drunk. And he said, well, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're drunk. Another group says, we don't know. We're there just agnostic. We have no idea. And then Peter says, no, this is the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what Zuckerman would say is, here's what's going on. They're, those people are drunk. That's what, that's what you're seeing. This is evidence of being drunk. And someone else say, well, I don't know. And I go, no, that's, that's God right there. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you'll, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And then they're all sitting around Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 8, a great persecution breaks out after Stephen got stoned to death. And then what you see next is the church got spread out. They got kicked out of Jerusalem and went all over, just like Jesus said. They went to Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Zuckerman would say, that's a sociological event. What would we say? Now, that's a movement of God. God's using human events. So that's the idea. Whenever you read the, hear the news or read the news, you're seeing the same thing through different lenses. If America suffers and faith goes up, Zuckerman sees sociology, we would see revival. <laughs> so worldviews, like I said, are hard to change. People, coming, uh, people don't just generally just easily change their essential worldviews unless something difficult happens. Or, like in Kill's case, a work of God. So you guys, have, maybe you've heard me tell this. It's one of my favorite jokes. I'll tell it again just in case you haven't heard it. But it's about how hard it is to change worldviews. And there was a, a psychologist who, who had a client who was convinced that he was dead. And <laughs> you, Steve's heard this before. And, and so he spends all day trying to convince this guy he's not dead. And he's exasperated at the end of the day. He asked the client, do dead people bleed? And the guy said, well, of course dead people don't bleed. Everybody knows that. So he jabs him in the hand with a pencil. And the guy goes, look at that. Dead people bleed. <laughs> and and the, you know, the idea is that's how hard worldviews are to change because like, you can give people evidence. People say, well, why didn't God just show up? He did. And what happened? I mean, he literally showed up, miracles. And, and people, some believed and some didn't. Well, if he'd show up for me, I would change. No, you wouldn't. You would just say, you know, that's, that's, you know, Star Trek is real. Somebody's transporting into my room. That's not an angel or whatever, or I'm dreaming. So everybody has a worldview. And I'm talking about worldviews as a, as a Christian, a, con, a committed Christian worldviewist. Everyone has one. Uh, not everybody is aware of what theirs is. Most people have not rationally gone out and built a worldview. They just have co collected it as they go. One worldview is true, and everything that's not that is not true. The law of non-contradiction. You know, A can't be A and B at the same time the same way. It's just the way it is. And so, regardless of what people say, well, all religions are essentially the same. They're absolutely not. They're, you can't hold these disparate worldviews at the same time. So, which worldview is true? Well, the one that God holds in his mind. <laughs> the 
this, this, morning, this morning the sermon was about God has revealed to us the truth. It came from his mind. It's not from people to one another. So what happens when worldview is tested and it fails? So there's several things. And if you've, maybe your worldview is tested and failed or, or you've seen people whose worldview has been tested and failed. People, there's, there's different um, things that can happen in my experience. So one, your worldview was true, but you had a flawed understanding of it. So for instance, a Christian worldview who believes in the prosperity gospel. And then you get cancer. Or you're broke. So you had a, you had a true worldview, but a part of it was flawed. Jesus has not promised you health and wealth. Nobody dies healthy. And so then you can correct your worldview, the parts that were not true. So if you read Job, Job had a flawed worldview. It got corrected by experience. The psalmist, Rodney's an expert in the psalms, probably wishes he wouldn't, wasn't. But the psalmist, they had a true worldview, but it was constantly getting corrected. I thought this, but this. But it, they didn't throw away God. They just said, I had these expectations, and they weren't true. In the 17th century, Galileo said the, the, um, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun, and he was called a heretic. Ironically, not, not by the church first, but by um, the academy, which would have been the universities at the time. So nowadays, professors like to say the church was against Galileo, and they were, but they were in collaboration with the university professors. That was their prevailing view, too. And Galileo was a committed Christian. He wasn't that nice of a guy, but he was a committed Christian. And so what he had was a, what, what, it wasn't like science disproved Christianity. The Bible never taught this um, earth-centric cosmos. It was used in phenomenological language. So if you see a weatherman, on the news, say, sunset tonight is going to be 6 o'clock, you don't go, that idiot doesn't know the sun doesn't move. He's using phenomenological language to explain how we see. And the Bible was written from the, as a view from planet Earth. This is how we're viewed. It, it, it wasn't written to be scientifically precise. It was written to describe the world. And nobody thinks a weatherman is an idiot who says the sun rises. We know he's talking phenomenologically. So what happened was the church corrected their some of their interpretation of Scripture, they didn't throw away their worldview. So you can have a true understanding, but a flawed, a true worldview, but a flawed understanding. And then ideally, you correct. Another is you can have a true understanding of, of a true worldview, and it gets challenged, and you lose your faith. That's, that's what's happening widely in what's called deconstructing your faith. There are people throwing away their faith uh, because something happened, or, some, or they think something happened, and they're throwing away a true, a true worldview and losing their faith. A good friend of mine, some, some, many of you all know, Robert Donovan, he came to Christ over 30 years ago. He grew up Roman Catholic, rejected that, and, and, and then he became New Agey. If you remember that, kind of, it's still around, but that was a big trend in the, in the 90s. And then he sort of dabbled in this and that. And then we became friends, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and over a five-year period of time, he was like, uh, he was listening and listening, and he didn't go back to, into Catholicism, but, but, the, but the basic, the same worldview, the gospel, Christ. 
And he called me one day. He, one day we were out exercising and he said, okay, I, I think Christ is the greatest person that's ever lived. I'm convinced of that, but I don't think he's God. I said, okay. Yeah, so like three years in, I'm comfortable with your, your searching. Two years later, he called me and said, it's all true. What do I got to do? And he's been, uh, you know, involved in our church ever since that, but he'd gone all the way back to this worldview. And so people, sometimes people who are de- deconstructing their faith now, in 10 or 20 years, a lot of them are going to probably come back, particularly if it was an authentic faith. And then there's people who have a false worldview and the pegs don't hold and they get a true one. They become Christians, followers of Christ. You see that, um, the Apostle Paul, there's a great book uh, written called by Sheldon Van Aken called A Severe Mercy. It came out many years ago, but he was a friend of C.S. Lewis's and he came to Christ. He was an atheist. His wife became a Christian. Have you read it? Yeah, it's been many, many years too, but it's a great book. And he was mentored by Lewis a little bit. And his, his tragedy caused him to, to leave a false worldview for a true worldview. And then there's uh, people with false worldviews who continue to believe it anyway. <laughs> the pegs don't hold, and they just, ah, la, 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 la. They, they believe it anyway. I mentioned, I finally finished reading that book that you recommended that probably you read in a month, and it took me all summer to get through it. But it's about, it's about the, the um, quantum physicists. It's not a technical book, but it was for me. And, and there's different schools of thought on the, the essence of physical reality, and these are among these scientists. And one guy, Hugh Everett, you remember him? He, um, he came up with the mini worlds, the, the multiverse, before, before Marvel's Avengers discovered it. He came, he came up with it as a scientific theory. And uh, his, 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 world, his worldview was all anything is is matter. We'll get to that in a minute. You know, and matter of fact, he told his family that he had ruined. He ruined his family. His daughter killed herself. His son became a nihilist. And he cheated on his wife multiple times. He told him, when I die, burn my body and put it in a bag and throw it in the garbage. And that was his worldview. And even when he looked around and his worldview wouldn't work, he resolutely wouldn't let go of it. You got, you've all heard there are no atheists in foxholes. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> there are some. There's some really obstinate. There's not many, but there are some. So some people hold on to their views against all evidence. So all worldviews have something similar to a biblical theology. We'll talk about seven basic worldview questions that I use, but the, the, four, the four big aspects of biblical theology are creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's how the Bible holds together. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And every worldview has something to say to those things. Like, what's ultimate reality? What's always been here? What's the, what's the origin stories? And then all worldviews have something to say to what's the problem? And then, all, then they all have some, what's the solution? And then what's, what's, the, what's destiny? What happens next? So here, Sire, if you read Sire's book, he has different questions. His are more complicated than mine. So I'm sticking with mine. And, and you, could, you, could, you could evaluate worldviews from a million different perspectives. But they're basically all going to be subsets of these questions. These are the seven that I use. So who or what is ultimate reality? And for Chris, ultimate reality means what's always been there. 
who or what's always been there. For the atheists the, or the naturalists or the materialists, those are all the same kind of a thing. All that's ever been here is what? What's always been here? Matter and, matter and energy or matter is stuff. Stuff in some form. And maybe, maybe at, at, the, at the very beginning of the cosmos as we know it, there was this infinitely dense something that exploded at the Big Bang and became everything. But humans can't think about that because if you think, if you're in your mind, if you think about matter, infinitely dense matter and energy, but it's not hanging in your mind. Okay, you can, I can think, I can picture that. No, you picture something hanging in space, but there's no space. This, this is all there is. Well, yeah, but where is it? That's exactly, there's, there's nothing but it. Can you imagine that? Of course not. No human being can imagine that. So we put this Big Bang, we put it in space. No, the Big Bang created space. So you, you can't really think about that. So who or what is ultimate reality? So for the Hindu, ultimate reality, different, depending on who you talk to, right? But ultimate reality would be Brahma, right? Or the, 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 the essential life, everything. It's really a impersonal um, everything. And that's what's always been. For the, the Christian, ultimate reality is a triune God. Father, Son, Spirit, existing eternally. Able to be and able to express, able to express personality because he's three persons in one being. If you just have a mono God, he can't express personality because who would he express it to? Well, then, well, he can create people. Well, then now you have a God who needs his creation. So we have a God who needs nothing, who's personal. So he's a triune God. And then who or what is a human being? So let's just say for. Eastern pantheism, a human being, is a part of the great big life force. And the goal is to get back to that, to be absorbed into that. For the atheist, materialist, what's a human being? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matter in some, matter in a different form, yeah. For the Christian, we're image bearers. And we bear the image of God. And, and there's different views on what that means over the years, but and creating his image and likeness, what it means at its essence is that we, we bear a, a, a family resemblance. We, we um, are like our father, and then we, we bear his, his, some of his authority he's given to us. So we have stewardship, we have dominion. So we, have, we bear his likeness in that we're like him, and then we bear his likeness in that we operate as his sub-regents in the created world what's our problem everybody everybody would say there's a problem for eastern pantheism the problem is illusion the same with some christian cults like um, christian science human problem is illusion uh, mary becker mary, mary baker eddie who founded christian science and it's neither christian nor science by the way but um, she was a deranged person and she she, she believed that she was slowly being killed by arsenic mentally administered. True story. That's how she thought she was getting sick. Somebody was administering arsenic to her through, you know, thoughts. And, and, but at the same time, she believed that sickness is illusion. <laughs> and death is illusion. 
and evil is illusion. So it's very inconsistent. For the atheist materialist, what's our problem? It kind of depends on who you talk to. But for the atheist, what would be some what would be some examples of our the answer to what's our what's our what's humans' problem? Lack of education. Lack of education. Yep. We just need more education. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. More, more, exclu- more, more inclusivity, more, all that kind of a thing. Yeah, lack of education. Did you say something? Huh? Mental health. But yeah, mental health. It's all going to be built around the, the physical. That's because that's all. The phys- even the mental is the physical. It's our because there's no soul. It's all built around. And very often for the for the atheist, materialist, whatever, it's going to be. The solution is going to be for more people to think like I do. <laughs> That's really how it's, how it's presented. If everybody was enlightened as I would, they would think this way. And so um, for the Christian, what's the problem? Sin. Yeah, rebellion against God, sin. And then the, 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 what's our solution? For, the, for Eastern pantheism, the solution is to escape illusion and, or to escape of reincarnation you know american in american new agey stuff reincarnation is a positive thing in the eastern world reincarnation is a negative thing you're trying to escape that cycle break out of it and so the solution is to break out of that for the atheist the solution would be more education uh, more tolerance um, public health you know all all kind of things revolving around now some atheists say what's our problem there is no problem. Alexander Pope was an atheist. He said, whatever is, is right. Whatever is, is right. And nature is red in tooth and claw. That's just the way it is. So when I was teaching my religion class at Collegiate 35 years ago, I had this young, young Alexander Pope in my class. And it was right before Thanksgiving. And he said, um, I think truth is completely relative. There are no absolutes. And he said it very boldly, and I said, so um, Thanksgiving was the next week. I said, so what if someone comes in to your, all the eighth graders are nodding their head like that sounds eloquent to him, you know. And so I thought, I got, I got to hurt him to help them, and so, or at least take the roof off, not trying to hurt him. But I said, if, if someone comes in Thanksgiving Day and machine guns granny at your dinner, is it right or wrong? He said, well, and everybody's looking at him, he said, well, it'd be wrong. I said, Why? He goes, well, because murder is wrong. I said, why? He said, well, because society said it's wrong. I said, okay, it's Nazi Germany. It's now society said it's right to machine gun your granny. Is it right or wrong? And now everybody's really looking at him. He goes, it would be right. And everybody goes, oh, no. And he dropped his head because he knew. He, he couldn't sustain that. But he, was, he couldn't say it would be wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's just wrong. I don't care if, if every person on the planet votes and says it's right to kill granny he knows in here that it's just wrong so then the the fifth question is um, purpose ethics meaning lots of different ways of saying that what matters what's good what's most valuable so in in some eastern cultures what's good what matters 
would turn out to be a caste system because if, if you're trying to escape reincarnation, then if you help someone jump up in life, you're not helping them in the long run. Or um, for the atheists or the materialists, there's a million different views. It could be what there are some nice atheists. There are some atheists who are, who are well-meaning and want to help people. But, but here's the thing, and this is, what, this is what bothered Chris Hitchens and the other leading atheists, the new atheists they were called, because they, they wanted to try to say, can you be good without God was one of the, one of the books. And they were trying to show these instances of where people were good without God. The problem is, is they didn't have that many examples because if you look at the giving to any cause, not just the church, but to any benevolence in the world among atheists versus believers of any kind, it's not even close. I mean, they're given pittance. And if you look at the hospitals you know, that, that were developed around the world, they weren't being built by atheists. Now, atheists have come in and taken them over and are running often, but they weren't started by atheists. And so very often what matters, what my purpose is, is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. That becomes the purpose. Or it could be I'm going to serve because I, find I derive pleasure from serving, which is good. It's not bad. But for, um, for the Christian, our purpose, you, you, we can say a lot of different ways. Be found faithful, know and love God, um, glorify God, all those different ways of saying the same thing. And I'm, I'm really not trying to be derogatory with the worldview. I, I, I'm hoping that if someone that held that worldview were sitting there, they, would, they may disagree with how I'm saying it because I'm speaking in generalities, but I'm hoping they wouldn't say, no, I don't believe that. I say, well, what do you believe? You know, Joe, my friend atheist, what do you believe? And I've got some friends like that. Well, I believe that the meaning of life is to serve people. I say, okay, well, why? What does that look like? Why do you believe that? <clears throat> but it's still going to be, um, it's still going to end up being stuff like, okay, what about this old person who's sick and they're, they want to live, but it takes a lot of resources to keep them alive? Well, um, I need to serve them by helping them die. That's still worldview informed. There's still going to be implications for that. Whereas we're going to say, Life matters from conception to natural death. We're going to say life matters. And we're going to struggle with what that looks like. And then what happens when we die? It's also called personal eschatology. The eschaton is the end. What happens when we die? You either are absorbed into the great life force, um, <clears throat> the atheist or the materialist. You just, you're just matter absorbed back into the cosmos. So put me out with the trash. And there are, there's all kind of versions of this. There are atheists. There are atheists who believe. There are atheists who believe in reincarnation. You know, it's kind of weird, but they don't believe it's supernatural. It's just the natural world is just more extensive than we think it is. So if you think about Star Trek, Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry was an atheist, but in his world there were any any Star Trek fans in here besides myself? Yeah, a few. So in 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 Roddenberry's world. Um, there were gods, like there was this being named Q. Q is a German word, source. He's, but he was a god being. He could do anything he wanted in the universe, but he wasn't separate from the universe. He was still, he was just a very powerful, natural being. So it can get very complicated. So you can have atheists who don't believe in a personal god or even anything beyond the physical cosmos, 
But you can have aliens that are so far advanced that, you know, they're essentially like gods. For the Christian, when, when we die, it's, death, it's appointed to man once to die, and after that to face judgment. We believe that there's a judgment, that when the Lord returns, there'll be new heavens and new earth, and then there'll be people who live eternally separated from God. And then question seven is, the technical term is epistemology. It's the, it's the study of how do we know? How do we know? And so we'll start with the Christian. How do Christians think you can know something? Three, three big ways. Through Scripture? We think you can know stuff through that. We think you can know stuff through Scripture you could not know through any other means. But we also believe you can know stuff through personal experience. We also believe you can know stuff through, through ex- experimentation. So Christians, I, we were driving, I was driving home from Topeka last night, and there was some Amish or whatever going by in their buggy, <laughs> horse and buggy, you know, and it had, but it had an LED light on the back. It was so ironic. So we, can, we, can't, use, we can't use combustion engines, but we, we can, you know, horse and buggy, but we can use technology uh, to a point. So we believe you can know through experiment, observation, experimentation. You know, science was birthed out of a Christian worldview. And then we believe you can know from experience. But if, but if observation, experimentation <clears throat> says something that betrays Scripture, then we go with Scripture. <clears throat> so if, if science says we believe there was this infinitely, infinitely small mass in the and in, in, in this, um, at the very beginning of time and space, and, and there was a bang, and we say, okay, that's fine. I mean, God preceded that. God made that. Um, so we'll go along with science until the point that science says something directly in, in, that refutes Scripture. And as we all know, science is continually changing, adapting. And then experience, we'll say, well, that experience is valid, but what if someone says, my experience is that I am a woman trapped in a man's body? We would say, your experience is false because it's contrary to Scripture. So, well, my experience, my experience was, I think this happened and God led me this way, and we'll go, okay, that lines up with Scripture? That's fine. Or we, I think God led me to, to marry Grant, good. Or better yet, Grant to marry you, even better. And so, so we, believe, we believe in those three different ways of knowing, whereas some worldviews you can only know through experience. Some worldviews you can only know through, through science, observation, experimentation, if you can't prove it that way. That sociologist I talked about, he, he said that <clears throat> if he can't prove it through data, through empirical data, then he wasn't going to believe it. So off the top of your head, what's, what's wrong with that? You can't prove his presupposition with empirical data. <laughs> where, where, did he get, where did he get the idea that I, have to, I can't believe if, if empirical data doesn't show it? How does empirical data show you that that is the way to think about the world? He didn't. He just started there. So why study worldviews? Well, first, we want to understand our own worldview and make sure that it's accurate and adequate in line with what Scripture says. This is Sire's quote. <clears throat> I can't remember if this is from the universe next door or another one. I don't know that this is completely true. This is an academic speaking. For any of us to be fully conscious intellectually, 
we should not only be able to detect the worldviews of others, but be aware of our own, why it is ours, and why in the light of so many options we think it is true. And um, I think there's something to that where, where Scripture says, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So I do think there's something to that. You don't have to become a worldview expert, but it's good to know why do I believe what I believe. And I'll talk a little bit about how you don't have to be able to win an argument about worldviews to have a right worldview. Another reason is to love our neighbors. Um, we want to be able to understand people to love them, not just to, to battle them or convince them otherwise. Paul, Paul, Paul said, those who oppose you must gently instruct in hopes that God will grant them repentance, leading them to escape the trap of the devil. So <clears throat> we don't want to do this to, to win arguments, but we want to understand this to win people. And then personally, <clears throat> the more our worldview aligns with the Bible, it helps us see God in the world when things are confusing. When we have friends who are just nice people, maybe they're nicer than Christians. <laughs> and, and so our, a fully formed worldview helps us make sense out of that. Okay, well, where would, this, where would this not as nice Christian be without Christ? And you can be a nice person and still be far from God. It helps us make sense out of the world when suffering comes. The last week we're going to look at, <clears throat> the third week we're going to look at worldviews in terms of evil and suffering, specifically. That every worldview has something to say about that. That is the big worldview question for everybody. And then we want to study this to honor and love God because if you're going to love someone accurately and well, whether it's a friend or a spouse or a parent or a child, you want to know them. You, know, you want to know your daughter to love her. And we want to know God to love him and grow in relationship. So again, like I said, worldview is not just concepts, but it's a heart orientation. And like I said, there's a lot of different factors in developing our worldview. So in that book that Kevin gave me um, or recommended, it was, there was these physicists were talking about there's, there's three main camps, but I mean two big camps, but let's say three camps, but there's two big camps on what makes up the quantum world, everything else is built out of. And they totally disagree on what that is. And as he was talking about, <clears throat> how did they come to these conclusions? Was it pure data? He said it was politics, it was personal morality, it was peer pressure, it was preferences. These are the scientists. He's saying, here's how they decided this versus this. It wasn't just, hmm, that data versus that. It wasn't at all. Am I, am I exaggerating? It's exactly what he said. And so... Our worldviews are shaped by us, and then it turns around and shapes us. We all do what makes sense to us. So Jesus said, by your fruit, you will know them. So here's, here's a big, <clears throat> a baffling <clears throat> part of worldview. Can you, be, can you be, we all do what makes sense to us. What we really hold to as a worldview, we will ultimately do. It's kind of a foundational principle. But can you be an inconsistent Christian and still say you hold to a Christian worldview? You know, what does Scripture say about that? It says, yes, we've been studying that in 1 John. You know, you're going to sin, he said. If you say you don't sin, you're lying. Don't keep sinning. Repent, but you're going to sin. And so there's a, there's a balance here because you, you know a person's worldview by what they do, not just what they say. But at the same time, nobody holds con perfectly consistently to their worldview. So there's a tension there. I don't have a simple answer for it. The Bible gives a tension. <clears throat> so 
the Bible would say, Jesus says, look, there's going to be weeds and wheat growing up in the same field. They look alike when they're young. Don't go out and start pulling weeds. You might pick, pick some weeds. The Lord will sort it out at the end. So we don't have to figure it all out. <clears throat> are they legitimately? Are they not legitimately? In terms of how we respond to them, we have to treat them like we see them. And that, so in, in church discipline, Matthew 18, church discipline, someone acts like they're not saved, public, persistent, unrepentant sin, then we come in and say, stop doing that. And they go, no. Then we say, okay, we're going to de-church you, put you out of the church. And what we don't, then we don't turn around and say, okay, now we treat them like a low-life scum. What do you do with unchurched people? You try to win them to Christ. <laughs> so it's not like you de-church them and then destroy them. You now treat them like their actions are telling you to treat them. You treat them like an unbeliever. You don't treat them like a Christian. You treat them like a non-Christian. You try to repent them, help them back to Christ. So <clears throat> my niece, this isn't, this isn't private. My niece, uh, my, my wife's sister's niece, she went through hard times uh, years ago, got pregnant, hit the bottom, turned around, just a beautiful story of restoration, married this tremendous person, and she lost her mind again. Uh, and now she's left him and left her kids and so she was at this dinner in, in Neosho, Missouri, Friday night, just sitting there miserably. We're celebrating her grandpa, my wife's dad's 90th birthday. And I'm like, I can't go over and just sit down and chit-chat with her like nothing's wrong. If she'd repented which, and turned around, then we would embrace her, help her. But she's persistently living in that. We're not showing love to her to just go, oh, how's it going, whatever. It's like, glad you're here, but... If I said anything, it'd be repent, <laughs> repent, turn back to God. So that's the tension in the Bible is you treat them like they act, but you don't know their heart. Only God does. <clears throat> so you can be an inconsistent Christian and hold to a Christian worldview. Like I said before, most people see the world through stories, not just propositions. Um, if we look at the war in Israel, we're all looking at the same war and we're seeing, we're, all, we're not just seeing data points. We're all seeing, based on our background, our theology, our experience. I mean, you, Robert spent a lot of time in war zones. He, he's going to see all war differently than most people are. And some, some of that may be, a lot of that's going to be better informed. Some of that's going to be maybe, okay, I saw this, so I, I see this. But we're all looking at that from widely different perspectives. So, um, what are the implications for helping people who have false worldviews? Which is what evangelism is. is. People, people, like I said this morning, either there's the, the scriptural view of who Jesus is and there's everything else. And everything that's not that is wrong. That makes the world absolutely mad, but um, they live the same way on their own particular worldviews. So the implications for helping people with false worldviews are build relationship, live the truth, <clears throat> um, pray for the Spirit of God to move, and then contrary to our social, sociologist friend, wait for hard times to strike. Because in my experience, that's usually when the door opens up in people's lives. And hard times are when most people come to Christ. Hard times are when people who know Christ grow the most.
We don't like to hear that. We'd rather, we'd rather go through a book or, a, or you know, a, a conference or something grand. But most, most, most real growth comes through hard times. And I can make a biblical model for that. And then truth doesn't depend on our ability to defend it or to live it perfectly. My, my, my granny, my dad's mom, we called her granny, uh, she, she was a Christian and walked with God. But, I mean, I, my, my 11-year-old granddaughters could run theological circles around her. I mean, she would have no idea. Granny, what do you think about the Trinity? Well, I love Jesus. And what about God? I love him too. Holy Spirit, yeah, I love him too. What do you think about the Trinity? I don't know. I love God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And, and if I put my granny up against Chris Hitchens, the, the knowledgeable atheist who died a few years ago, he would crush her. She would, she would just be speechless. She wouldn't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> and then when they walked away, Chris Hitchens is absolutely wrong and my granny's absolutely right. You, you get the point. You don't, truth doesn't depend on your ability to defend it. Truth is not based on who has a better argument. Reality is not a debate class. And it, it doesn't even depend on your ability to consistently live it. This is really important. So Paul said, whether from false motives or pure, Christ is preached in Philippians 1. There were people <clears throat> who had messed up motives and they were preaching the truth. They may not even have been believers. I believe, you know, from, from the evidence... Um, some of the famous people who have fallen and died, like Ravi Zacharias, I mean, from evidence of his life, it looks like he wasn't even a Christian. I don't know that. God only knows. But lots of people evidently came to Christ because it's, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ is Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 5. So we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim. So the power of gospel, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. And in John 9, there's this great story <clears throat> about truth that depends on our ability to defend it. There's the man born blind, and his disciples say, who sinned, this guy or his parents? So there's a worldview question. And Jesus, what did Jesus say? Neither. Why, did, why is this man born blind? Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, really? They, they had, that, was a, that was a worldview correction. And then they brought, then, then Jesus healed the guy and they brought the Pharisees to him who had a, had a worldview. How'd you receive your sight? And well, this guy put some mud on my eyes. I washed it off and now I see. That's what he said. He had no idea. And they, and they said, well, he couldn't be from God and here's why. So I started explaining to this guy why he couldn't be from God. He did this on a Saturday, on a Sabbath. Couldn't be from God. And the blind man says, well, that doesn't make sense. Because if he's not from God, how did he do this? And they said again, well, what do you say about him? Your eyes are one open. They said, well, he's a prophet. They don't like that. They said, bring his parents in. <clears throat> Is this your son? Yeah. Was he born blind? Yeah. He can see now what happened. And the Bible says they were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. So they said, he's grown. Ask him. <laughs> and so a second time they bring him in and said, give glory to God. Meaning like, you know, swear on a Bible. We know this man's a sinner. And they, they're a leading question. And he says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But I do know this. I was blind, but now I see. I said, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they said, well, I already told you. 
Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they got really ticked off. They, they hurled insults at him. They started talking about how they're knowledgeable, they're disciples of Moses. And then he says, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. You open my eyes. Sure looks like he's from God. Nobody's ever heard of this before. And then in all their great intellect, they go to ad hominem attack. Well, you were steeped in sin at birth. This is like, you know, um, Rodney starts beating me in this argument, this debate, and I go, well, I don't like your shirt, or, you know, you're ugly, or whatever. That's exactly what they did. And the guy could not, he couldn't defend what happened to him. But in reality, it happened to him. So the point of all that, I hope it encourages you to not get, don't get locked up about being able to debate somebody. We could all find somebody and come in here and beat us in a debate. So what? So here's some, let's do some definitions. We've already been kind of unpacking worldviews. Let's see, skip, go to the next one. I don't think I want Sire's big, let's read it. This is, go back, we'll do Sire's because it's so, I I like the hooks you hang things on better. But Sire's is, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart. We, we kind of get that now. That can be expressed as a story or a set of presupposition. You know, ideas like point one, point two, point three. Assumptions that might be true, partly true, or all false. We talked about that. Which we hold consciously or subconsciously. We talked about that. Consistently or inconsistently. We talked about that. About the basic constitution of reality. It's elephant all the way down. And provides a foundation on which we live and move and have our being. It's not just what we think but it's how we live our lives that's sire's kind of comprehensive worldview so let's look at some some worldviews and sire's got a lot of them he's got them broken out differently but these are the big big categories so theism what is what is theism essentially huh believe in a god what kind of a god a personal god right so Theism versus deism. Deism believes in a God, but what kind of God? An impersonal God. The clockmaker. So deists, which was, which was popular, Thomas Paine and some of our founding fathers, deism was a popular belief then. They believed that God wound up the universe like a big clock, then he went off to do something else and left it running down. And you can see deism in some, in some movies. You, you'll, people who talk about God, um, but he's a deist God. So anybody ever seen, there's been a couple of them, The War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. There was a, an old black and white, and there's a new Tom Cruise version. In the old one, in the old one at the end, and this comes from the radio show that sent the country into panic. You guys know, remember that? In the old one at the end, what happens, if you remember, these aliens are just crushing us. We can't stop them. We shoot nukes at them, doesn't stop them. Then all of a sudden they start dying. In the original War of the Worlds, what killed them? Do you remember? They died of a cold. They, they all died of common colds. And so in the voiceover in the original War of the Worlds, the H.D. Wells said, our, our, our brilliant creator put into the world at the beginning this protective thing. And you go, okay, that sounds, you know, the cold. And you say, well, that's, that, that sounds like theism. No, theism would have been, God said no, and he came in and he stopped these things. He actively stopped them. Deism is, he built this virus into the system for when we needed it. He wasn't actively involved in any of it. It was just sort of happening on its own. So theism, you can have, is it believes in a personal God, a personal God. 
And so there's Christian theism, and Muslims sometimes say we believe in three gods, but they don't understand, or, you know, the three persons, one being. Of course, it's super complex. There's Judaism. Islam is a theistic religion. <clears throat> and so a personal God. Deism is, is an impersonal God. And not a life force, just he's not involved. So Christians believe in a, in a transcendent, he's bigger than space and time, and imminent, he's involved in space and time. Deists believe in only imminent. He's not only, only transcendent, he's not imminent, he's not involved. So a deist isn't going to pray. Then you might say your prayers to align yourself, but you're not going to ask God to do something. So Thomas Paine is not going to ask God to help him with something because God's not really involved. And then atheism just means, ah, just means um, not, so no God. And I combine several things together, so atheism means no God. You'll hear naturalism, which just means nature is all there is, which is the same, another way of saying it. Materialism is another way of saying the same thing. And then there are, there are atheists, naturalists who are superstitious, which is ironic. But somehow in the natural world, the world just made of stuff, there are certain things, you know, you've got to hold your foot just right. So there are atheists who knock on wood or wear their lucky socks or whatever. And like, but somehow that's kind of baked into the physical cosmos. Who knows why? Here, speaking about, so uh, we'll, we'll wait till we get to pantheism. So then um, <clears throat> agnosticism, what's, what's that mean? Don't know, right, yeah. And so really, I've heard um, people who say, I lean atheist, but to be intellectually honest, you can only say you're agnostic. Because to say you're an atheist, you'd have to be God, because you'd have to been everywhere and know everything. So intellectually honest people, in my opinion, are going to be agnostic. I don't know. And then pantheism, <clears throat> pan means, pandemic means what? Like pantheism, God is... God is, a, yeah, everything is, everything is, a, and there's a lot of different categories. So there's pantheism, God, everything is God. All, all the created world is God somehow. Polytheism means what? Many, multiple gods, yeah. And so um, then you have like the Mormons. Are the Mormons theists? Are they polytheists? Because they believe in multiple gods. And then animism, what's animism? Sound familiar? It would be like a lot of tribal religions or um, and objects. Objects have spirits in them. And so they could be, I guess you could be an atheist and animistic, believing that the universe is all there is, but there's a spirit in that rock, you know. So I would say, um, oh, what's the, the movie? Um, Avatar. Avatar, Cameron's an atheist, but he's an atheist and he's an animist because... Because if you saw Avatar, the planet has its spirits and it's all connected. So it's sort of, sort of supernatural, but it's really not. It's all just kind of, it's, it's not super beyond the natural world. It's just really amazing things inside the natural world. So if you think about, if you were to say the George Lucas's original Star Wars, The Force, what would you say that was? Any, I would say sort of, panthe, you know, sort of pantheistic, yeah? Maybe, 
you know, but now if you, if you watch any of the new stuff, like the last five years, the, in, in the original 1970 Star Wars, the force was a, a supernatural force, really. It was the, the force be with you. It was almost a personal, but not really, but it was a supernatural force. Now, the current iteration of all the different Star Wars universe stuff, it's truly naturalistic. It's just a, a kind of like gravity or some other unknown force inside the physical world. So he's kind of throwing away the new agey stuff from the 70s, and now it's, it's still the force, but if you listen right, it's two different kind of forces going on here. That was a supernatural force. This is a natural force. Claire, have you, have you, have you, have you noticed that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's shifted. And if you... And maybe you're not, Chris and I, fortunately, we both like sci-fi. Otherwise, I wouldn't watch as many as we do, but we both like them. So let's look at some other, we're going to talk next week about the big five world religions and, and some cults. The big five are Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Those aren't the, there's actually, um, Judaism isn't the, in the top five numerically, but they're the top five in terms of impact on the world. So we'll look at them. And then, so um, we'll look at those. Next slide, if you would. So that's some other definitions. And this is where it all kind of starts running together. But I think it'd be helpful just to look at these quickly. So worldview is the, the, lens, the lens that we see through. So uh, a religion would be uh, an application of a worldview. So uh, you could have... So worldviews could be pantheism, polytheism, atheism, Christian theism, and religion. What are, what are some? What are the what are the big um, religions that are theistic? We just named them all ago. So Islam, Judaism, Christianity. Yeah. Well, Buddhism wouldn't be theistic, but they would. Buddhism, I would, I would call Buddhism, I would call Buddhism agnostic. Yeah. What's that? Sikh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, ironically, I, I would say that, I would say, it depends on which Buddha you talk to, but if you talk to the Buddha, he was agnostic about all things, about all things post-life. And then you have um, <clears throat> a sect. So technically a sect is a subgroup that has that doesn't accept the that that doesn't that that is off on some minor tenets of the larger group. So you could have a Islamic sect or a Christian sect. So some extreme Pentecostals, they believe in the Trinity and but they have some some important parts that most Orthodox Christians would not buy into. So that would be a sect, and it's not a derogatory term; it's a descriptive term. Then you have a cult. And we think of cults as being derogatory again. But a cult is a descriptive word. A cult is a subgroup that varies on the major tenets of the larger group. So when I was teaching that class, I made the mistake, or maybe not, of, of saying, okay, I, was just, I was giving cult. I, was, I gave the major religions, and then we spent weeks on the cults, and we got the Christian science. Well, some big money donors at Collegiate were Christian scientists, <laughs> and one of their kids was in my class. And so he was, not, he was not happy. His parents weren't happy. And I said, this is, a, this is a technical term. I said, here's a dictionary definition of a sect. It's a group that doesn't hold to the major tenets of the faith 
that they're umbrellaed underneath. And I said, here's what, here's what historically Christian believes, here's what Christian scientists believe. And, he, and so I, I didn't get fired for, for that, which would have been fine if I did, but it's true. So the Mormons are a cult. They don't hold to the uh, major tenets. Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. <clears throat> um, the Way International is a cult. So we would call them non-Christians. We would, we would consider a sect maybe, you know, still Christians, but we'd go, you're off on some things. But we would consider cults not, not, not Christians, even though they may think they are. A denomination is, the word literally just means to, to name. So like if you talk about a $5 bill, a $10 bill, a $20 bill, those are denominations. That's how we, those are denominations of money. Denomination is just a, a naming, a different naming. Last count, there are over 43,000 denominations, Christian denominations. <laughs> and, and, you know, people get really upset about that. That just shows you how messed up the church are. I go, no, actually, it's, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it, it, it allows us to get, get along. Um, and we can go, as long as these churches are following the gospel, then that's great. Go, I'm glad I don't have to worship like you or sit in your building or do what you do. And so I don't think it's a, I mean, it's, a lot of it's because of problems, but I don't think it's a huge problem. And there's, a, there's endless variations on, on, not endless, there's, there's, yeah, there's endless variations almost, but there's not, there's an actual limited number of worldviews, religion, there's a, there's a limited number. It can feel endless, but there's a lot. I mean, you can, you can dream this stuff all up over and over, but the more, the more diverse you get, the more you start. And there's not that much difference, you know. Um, th there may be just a little bit of difference, and nobody knows the difference. Like, okay, we're a, you know, we're a, we're a face right on Sunday morning church, and they're a, we, we split with them because they're a face left on Sunday morning church, you know. So you can start splitting down to really hairs. But I found this interesting. There's, there's, when I was looking at, thinking about almost an infinite but not an infinite um, number of religions or worldviews. It can feel like it. But I was thinking about melodies. How many different possible melodies are there? I'm not a musician, but there's, there's 825 followed by 17 zeros. That's a, that's a big number. <laughs> possible melodies that are 10 notes long. So if you were to play those, some, some sci a, science, a mathematician who's a musician said it would take 2.6 trillion years <laughs> to play them all. That's a lot. But his conclusion is, at, hey, at the end of 2.6 trillion years, that'd be it. There's no, <laughs> no, more, no more of those 10-note melodies to play. And so the, the idea is, is if, you start, if you just get overwhelmed by, there's 4,000 there's 4, religions that we, that we know of. And, but, it, but again, if you start breaking them down, okay, yeah, but there's only so many basic worldviews, and you kind of fit under there, and there's different ideas inside those, but you can at least make sense out of where someone's coming from. And not to win arguments, but to understand them. So like, for, the, for instance, for the Hindu, if you were to, or the Buddhist, if you were to start using terminology like Christian word for sin then it's like, it's, it would be like talking to, explaining some, talking to Robert, but hey, let's talk about football. How many home runs did you get? You know, like, what are you talking about? You know, it, it, it's using terminology that doesn't make any sense. So if you, 
if you, if you use a classic evangelism pitch, you know, um, I want to tell you how you can have eternal life to a Hindu. And he said, that's the exact same thing I'm trying to escape right now. I'm trying to get out of this endless cycle of eternal life. Because you're not using, so you've got you've to, if you understand a little bit about these categories, you can go, okay, we all, we all have ideas about ultimate reality, who we are, what our problem is, what our solution is. But then you can start looking at <clears throat> how do I talk to these people in ways that make sense to both of us. So let's finish. We'll talk about choosing a worldview. Um, we, we believe, my, my, favorite, my favorite example is from C.S. Lewis about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he said, the kingdom of God is like there's a door, and on the outside of the door it says, whosoever will enter here. And so you go, okay, I will. So you walk in, and after you've been in there for a while, you've been enjoying the fellowship and the warmth of the house, you look on the door from the inside, it's got the same door says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. <laughs> and so that's kind of how it works. And so God is sovereign and we're responsible. So we believe we chose a worldview. You chose a worldview. We also believe God chose you. We believe both of those things at the same time. And we don't think there's a conflict. So um, choosing a worldview, we should be, if, if we believe or since we believe God has spoken to us and God has chosen us, then we should have humility and we should have confidence because I didn't, I didn't just choose God. God chose me. If God chose me, he will keep me. So humility and confidence. And then we have to ask, does this explain what's actually there? And I'm convinced the Christian worldview does. When I look at the world around me experientially, and the, more, the longer I've lived, the more I believe this. You know, when I was a young man, I believed it because I was taught it. And often our students will struggle. Do I believe this just because I, I grew up with it? And what I've told our kids, look, Something's true and everything not that is not true. So if you were blessed to have grown up in what's true, then that's just uh, a responsibility you have. But don't reject what's true just because you happen to grow up in it. So does it explain what's there? And a Christian worldview does explain what's there. It explains why there's evil and why there's good. It explains why humans are, are capable of such nobility and such terrible things. It explains human history. So it explains what's there. And then does it work? We're not supposed to be completely pragmatic about our worldview because if you're, if, you're, if you're a pragmatist, you're going to mess up your life because if I'm, if I'm completely pragmatic, I'm going to say, okay, right now, and Sadie runs into this, as she's a physical therapist, and so you have people come in and they'll say, uh, I want you to fix me <laughs> right now. Well, okay, you do this for six months. No, 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 give me a pill. I took a pill and it worked. How did it work? I felt better. Okay, yeah, but it's not going to work six months now when you're addicted to pills and the root problem is still there. So if you're completely pragmatic, what works is going to be what I want right now. But if we're balancing, okay, we're going to believe what God has said, then this really ought to work. It ought to, if, 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 if tried, it ought to work. So if you try Christianity in your marriage, at your workplace, in the military, in combat zones, if you try it as written, it works. It, by, by works, I'm meaning it's not like all my dreams will come true, but it works as advertised, as, as really advertised. So if the worldview is self-contradictory, if you can't live it, 
So for instance, for instance the, the naturalist or the atheist, there, there's no way a naturalist could have ethics or purpose. Not really. They can say they do, and they can make one up, but I can say, yeah, I'm not saying you can't come up with a purpose. I'm not saying you can't choose to be nice. I'm just saying you have no reason for it. And if someone looks at you and says, hey, if the Nazis are in power, they're in power. You can't, say, you can't speak to them. You can't. And this, there were some atheists at the time of World War II who stopped being atheists because they realized they couldn't speak against Nazism from their worldview. It didn't work. They didn't necessarily become Christians, but they said, this doesn't work. This is not real. Okay, that's a lot. Seven minutes, seven minutes to go. Any comments, questions from all that? It's okay if you don't. 